Our scripture reading this morning comes from Micah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. If you're using your pew Bibles, it's located on page 778. My name is Chris Sherrill, and I am currently serving on the Board of Women. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, good morning and a warm welcome again to McLean Press. My name is James Forsyth, one of the pastors here, and it's a privilege to be able to stand up week by week and open God's word alongside with you and learn more of his love and its implications for our lives. So if you're here in our sanctuary or down in our fellowship hall or even joining with us online, we're really glad that you're here looking forward to this time together. Um, Just back from our young adult retreat, spoke at our young adult retreat this week, and it was just a really encouraging time. If you are a young adult, know that there is a a great community of other young adults, folks in your age and stage to get connected with here at the church. Uh, If you're not a young adult, um, and if you're not sure if you are or not, you're not, right? Um, (laughs) If you're not a young adult, just be encouraged that there is uh, a great and and healthy community of of, uh, young folks in our church uh, wrestling with what it means to follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. So pray for them and uh, just be encouraged to have them uh, in our church. And now though, we are going to set this time aside to turn to the book of Micah. And as we turn there together, I'd encourage you to open up your Bible from the pew rack in front of you or on your phone or other device. And uh, let me first pray for us before we dive in. Father, your word tells us that all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. So would you lead us into those paths this morning as we come to your word? Give us the ears to hear what it is you would have us hear. Um, Lord, in this crazy busy season, thank you for these moments just to rest, quiet our hearts, uh, rest our minds in your word and hear from you. So be with us to the end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is the most wonderful time of the year, but I wonder, um, how's your, your to-do list looking? Uh, for me, it's been a bit of a mental week, one of those weeks where you're out every night and there's still a lot to do. I actually Googled Christmas to-do list and came up with an article that has a um, hundred things to do before Christmas. Here are some of them. Decorate the tree. Deck the halls, make cookies, make a gingerbread house, buy gifts, wrap gifts, send out cards, read Christmas stories, watch Christmas movies, listen to Christmas music, sip hot chocolate, drink eggnog, 
don't overeat. Build a snowman, go ice skating, book a hair appointment. Is that a thing? That wasn't on my, okay, that's a thing, okay. I I will add it to my list. Um, Give to charity, write to Santa, call your mother, stick to your budget, on and on and on it goes. The holiday holiday statistics tell us that around 70% of us right now are stressed by the feeling that we don't have enough time. And that around similar number, around 70% of us are stressed by the feeling that we don't have enough money. Now, if you're one of these uber-organized people who's already bought their gifts, already wrapped them all, already got them under the tree, that's great, congratulations, but you also have to deal with the fact that the rest of us hate you, okay? So, you know, there's, there's that. Um, Christmas is great, but in this season, this busy season, how do we make the most wonderful time of the year truly wonderful? How do we make the most wonderful time of the year truly wonderful? Well, let's go to God's Word together. We're in the book of Micah. Micah is known as one of the minor prophets. This is one of the 12 uh, prophets that you find at the end of your, your Old Testament. And they're called the minor prophets, not because they're unimportant, but just literally because they're, they're shorter. So last week I said that Isaiah was like the heavyweight champion of Old Testament prophets, while Micah is kind of like the middleweight king. Uh, He and Isaiah were contemporaries. They both lived and worked at the same time, and we're talking about 700 years before Jesus walked on earth. So everything we said, if you were with us last week about the context of Israel at this time, applies uh, to Micah as well. This is a fairly bleak and fearful time in the lives of God's people. Partly because they're facing internal divisions. They've just gone through this civil war that has divided God's people into two separate kingdoms. There's Israel in the north and Judah in the south. But now they're dealing with more than internal opposition, more than trouble from within. They're also dealing with trouble from without as the Assyrian armies have come and have cast a shadow of fear and dread over their entire region. So things in Israel, things for God's people at this time are bad, and in verse 1 we read that they're going to get worse. Things are bad and they're about to get worse. See it there? Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Military defeat is coming. Scholars are divided over whether this refers to the defeat of the Assyrians in around 700 or maybe the Babylonians, which came about 100 years later. But either way, the point is clear. Military defeat is coming. And it will be so complete that even your leaders will fall into enemy hands. Your very leaders will be struck and oppressed. They'll be played with like a cat plays with a mouse. Things are bad and they're going to get worse. Now, like last week when we reflected on a season of darkness maybe having resonance for us, so we continue that thought this week as well. Not because we are facing the Assyrians, but because there are very real struggles in our own world and in our own lives as well. And last week we agreed, we said that, yeah, as a church, we don't want to celebrate this Advent season in a way that's daft or silly or or idealistic. We want to be honest about the fact that life is hard, that if the holidays are hard for you, then this is the church for you. But we also agreed last week that in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the the reality of our struggles, we do want to try and focus our eyes on Christ, focus our eyes in the midst of the darkness on the light that does shine under the door. 
in the midst of our challenges and stress, our sadness and regrets. We want to focus not on the darkness, but on the light who overcomes. And that's what we're going to do again this week. Because into this context of humiliation, into this context of hopelessness that God's people face in this time, Micah comes and speaks a word of peace. Peace, even in the midst of your struggles, even in the midst of your brokenness, peace. We're going to try and apply this peace to our own lives under two headings. Last week, we thought about darkness and light. This week, we're going to contrast something little with something large. Little and large, something insignificant with something significant, something trivial with something triumphant. So let's do that together. Starting in verse 2, where we see what is little, and what is little, quite clearly there, is Bethlehem. But you, we read, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah is just an older name for uh, Bethlehem. We read, You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming is from of old, from ancient of days. So this is a prophecy that tells us that the Savior, Jesus himself, is going to be born in Bethlehem. Jesus is the one who will come forth from God. Remember, to us a son is given, Jesus himself. Jesus is the one who will rule over Israel. The government is going to be on his shoulders. The rescue and reign of God's people will belong to him. Jesus is the one whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. He was first promised as far back as Eden itself. And verse 3 tells us more about what Jesus will do. Do you see it there at the start of verse 3? God shall give his people up until that time when she who is in labor has given birth. So God's people are going to be given up. They're going to be separate from God until that time that Mary gives birth to a child. But then, the second half of verse 3, uh, the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Jesus will gather up his own and together they'll return to the Lord. Jesus has come to deal with the separation that exists between God and his people. So it's amazing, isn't it, that some 700 years before Jesus was, was born in Bethlehem, which is a, just a, a, a pretty undisputed fact of, of history, whether you believe in Jesus as Savior as not, the fact that he was born, that he was born in Bethlehem, that he did walk upon the, upon the earth is a, a recognized fact. And 700 years before that happened, Micah predicted it would happen. And if you're skeptical of the truth of of Scripture, I just encourage you to chew on this. If you have thought that Scripture really is is myth or or fairy tale, um, how do we explain the predictions and fulfillments that factually happen in history if this book isn't the Word of God? What is the explanation for this 700-year prediction? If you are a believer, then just be encouraged by the substance that's in this book. This book is worthy of basing our lives upon. This book is worthy even of basing our eternities upon. But the main point for just now is the revelation that the Savior, Jesus himself, is going to be born where? In, in Bethlehem. In little Bethlehem. Got to understand that in Micah's day and in the day that Jesus was born, Bethlehem was a wee little town in the middle of nowhere of absolutely no relevance and no significance whatsoever. In fact, had Jesus not been born there, none of us would still have heard of it. 
It is, a, it is a podunk town in the middle of nowhere, so small that we read it is too little to be among the clans of Judah. This is a reference back to Joshua chapter 15, where the Israelites have entered the promised land, and now uh, different cities are being assigned to different regions within Israel. It's like the districting of the promised land. And Joshua chapter 15 lists, lists over over 100 cities. Flick to that chapter, you just see name after name after name after name after name that are being assigned to the region of Judah. Well, Bethlehem, though it is in that region, is so small, so insignificant, of such irrelevance that it doesn't even get mentioned in the list of over 100 names. It is a town in the middle of nowhere. And that's not where we expect the Savior to be born. We expect the, we expect the Savior to be born somewhere impressive, like somewhere like D.C., And when he was born, we welcome him like we welcome all leaders. We're glad you're here. We need your help. Now come see the mall, see the monuments, see the capital. And then when he didn't meet our expectations, we'd we'd crucify him, right? Um, We expect Jesus to be born somewhere impressive. And if not D.C., then, you know, maybe L.A. or anywhere that you can refer to with initials, right? NYC, ATL. Like, we don't expect Jesus to come from, you know, um, I'm going to offend someone here. I'm going to. Canada, right? Yeah, fellow Americans, yeah. Two quotes here, one from Dale Ralph Davis, who's one of my favorite Old Testament commentators. He says, the primary significance of Bethlehem is its very insignificance. The primary significance of Bethlehem is its very insignificance. A longer quote here from another commentator. Here we see a frequent tendency in God's ways. I think that's normal for God to do. God is prone to choose the obscure, the insignificant, the lowly, the common, the unnoticed as the very instruments through which he displays the brightest flashes of his glory. The brightest flashes of his glory. Here's the Bethlehem principle. God takes what is little, insignificant, trivial, and uses it to accomplish great things. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, that's either really challenging or really encouraging. It might be challenging because we live in a town that prizes power, that prizes influence, that prizes success, that loves to name drop. And the Bible would come to us this morning and say, be very, if you, be very careful if you think you're something. If you think you're something... You need to remember that God is the one who delights in what is foolish and weak and lowly and despised, and he does his best work through people like that. He makes his strength made known, made perfect even through our very weaknesses. And if we have become a little impressed with ourselves as we have done well in this world and and climbed that tree, let's remember that God opposes the proud. Can you think of anything more terrifying than being opposed by God? Be careful if you think you're something. At the same time, this verse is very very encouraging, I think, if you think you're nothing. If you think you're nothing, if you think you don't have much to offer, then let's remember that God takes what is little and insignificant and trivial and uses it to accomplish great things. So the fact that you don't think you don't have much to offer qualifies you to be used by God in order to display the brightest flashes of his glory. 
Don't think that service in the kingdom is the reserve of those special Christians over there who are you know, holier than you, no more than you, better educated than you, in some ways more than, than you. No, God delights to use the foolish things in the world, the broken things in the world, in order to accomplish his purposes. Why does he do that? He does that because when he accomplishes things through people like us, it's really obvious that the credit doesn't belong to us that the credit belongs to him, that the glory belongs to him for what he has done through us. So don't feel in your weakness that you're on the bench of Christianity. God is saying, hey, get in the game. Get in the game. Be a part of my kingdom work. And your very, uh, your lack of qualification is exactly what qualifies you to be used by me. To be used by me. God opposes the proud. But God gives grace to the humble. <laughs> and if there's nothing more terrifying than being opposed by God, there's nothing more beautiful than receiving grace from God. So we start with little Bethlehem, significant because of its insignificance. And it teaches us, it reminds us of how God's works. God loves to take the little things, the small things, the trivial things, and use them to accomplish great things. And we want to remember that, that he might do something through us here today. But not everything in the text is little. Yes, Bethlehem is little, but we also see something large. And the large thing in our text is Jesus himself. Little Bethlehem and large Jesus. The text uses three words to emphasize the size and the power and the triumph of Christ. Verses 4, shepherd. Verse 4 again, security. Verse 5, peace. Shepherd, security, peace. First of all, Jesus is called our, our shepherd in verse 4. We read it there, you see, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. This is describing the largeness of Christ by giving us a picture of his strength, a picture of his strength. He is the shepherd who stands. He stands because he is ready to help ready to help his people, ready to help his children. He is active, he is vigilant, he is on his toes. Jesus is not merely watching from a distant uh, distance, kind of dispassionately observing what's going on. He is standing ready to help his people. And not only does he stand, but we read he stands in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord. So not only is he standing ready to help, but he has the strength and majesty that would make him able to help. It's not that he just kind of wishes us well and is unable to, to, to intervene and help us, but that he has the might and power needed to intervene, the power to protect his people. And think of the shepherding picture. He has the power to protect us from, from our enemies. If we're being lied about or gossiped about or mistreated or opposed or neglected, we know that our shepherd is ready to defend us. The shepherd, though, perhaps best of all, doesn't just uh, protect us from enemies. He also protects us from ourselves. When we wander off, when we get caught up in sin or uh, betrayal or uh, rebellion or, or are tempted to fall away, we celebrate the shepherd who leaves the 99 in order to come after the one and carry us home. And I just that's such an encouraging thought. If you find yourself back in church this morning and it's been a while, or maybe you're not even sure what you're doing here still, do you realize that this very morning might be fruit of the fact that Jesus has come after you to carry you home? 
that you may be here because the shepherd loves you and he's not going to let you fall away. That though you may wander from him, you can't wander for long because Jesus comes after you and carries you home. That's good news for people like me. It's good news for people like you. It's good news for people like us who are prone to wonder. So he's a shepherd. We're not saying the darkness isn't real. We're saying the light overcomes. We're not saying the problems aren't real. We're just saying Jesus is large. (laughs) He is bigger than the darkness and he's bigger than our problems. Not only is the shepherd though, we read he's also our security. Second half of verse four, you see it there? And they, that's the people of God, shall dwell secure. For now, Jesus shall be great to the ends of the earth. So this picture of his strength is now tied to a picture of of care. Because of his strength, we dwell secure. I, I love that the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew term for dwell secure literally means to sit And I love that contrast now we have in our text. Um, Jesus stands protecting his people. And because he stands, we sit. Because of his strength, the fact that he is ready and able to help us, we can sit and rest secure. Because he stands and shepherds, we are secure. His strength is used for our care. Again, we're not saying life won't have challenges or problems or will always be easy. We're saying that Jesus sees us, cares us, and cares for us, and will use his strength for our good. Third term we get to emphasize that the size of Christ is in verse 5, where we read that he shall be their peace, our shepherd, our security, our peace. He shall be our shalom. He shall be our total well-being. And don't you love how the text says, the text doesn't say he'll give us peace. It says, he'll be our peace. It's the difference between him giving us a gift and him giving us himself. He doesn't just give us peace. He is our peace. In him, we have peace with God. That separation has been dealt with. We can be one with God uh, once more. In him, we have peace with one another. Those who are united to Christ are also united to each other. You're sitting beside your siblings. You're sitting amongst your family. He even gives us peace with ourselves as our shame and our guilt is taken away. So again, we're not saying that the clouds don't roll in, that sometimes the Assyrians don't come. We're saying that even in the midst of trouble, it can be well with our souls because we have the Prince of Peace, who hasn't just given us a gift of peace, but has given us himself. You see this picture of shepherd strength, this picture of security, care, leads us to peace. An experience of his strength and care will give us peace. Uh, Reminds me, um, dads, you know, moms too, but especially dads, uh, it's really important to wrestle with your children. Uh, Do you remember being a kid and that healthy uh, roughhousing that you do with your dad or with an uncle or with someone else in your family? If you've never had that experience, I've asked Rob Yancey to be in the McLean room after the service, so you can go and get a, a holy beat down from Rob. Um, I remember when my kids were wee, like the second I walk in the door, honestly, the second I walk in the door, I would be attacked by various children from various angles, right? They would appear out of nowhere, and I regretted having so many, right? Um, and then we would, you know, whoop and holler and yell and fight and roll around and, and, and wrestle, and, um, you know, it was, just, it was just a great time. Now, here's what I love about, about wrestling with kids. First of all, um, it models strength to them 
in a way that's really good for them. Because your four-year-old approaches you, confident he's going to take you down, and you get to show him, son, (laughs) you are not the center of the world, right? Secondly, though, and so importantly, it also models care because they realize they're in the arms of another who's much stronger than them and one who will never use their strength to actually do them harm. And so that's a really beautiful experience for them. And then thirdly, the thing I love about it is is how it always results in peace. Uh, Wrestle your kids to the ground, and then they always just want to sit in your lap afterwards. They sit in your your lap and they feel secure. Why? Because it's good to be in the arms of one who's so much stronger than you and who really cares for you. Strength and care lead to peace. The experience of tender strength is powerful. It enables us to sit in the arms of another and feel secure. Now, listen, my kids are getting big. I've got three teenagers now, right? Um, But we're never going to outgrow our God. We're never going to outgrow our God. And so we want to experience his tender strength that leads us into peace. We're not saying the sorrows aren't real. We're just saying Jesus is bigger. I'm not saying that your worries for the future aren't real. I'm just, we're just saying Jesus is bigger. We're not even saying your sin isn't real. You know, the regret and shame you might feel right now, okay, it's real. But Jesus is bigger. And an experience of his tender strength sitting on his lap is enough to make us feel secure. In the midst of the darkness, fix your eyes on the light that's under the door. But here's my concern. Here's my concern for us at this Advent, my concern for myself, my concern for you, my concern for us, family, is that in this crazy season where there's so much to do and apparently our, our to-do lists have a hundred items on them, we won't actually stop to do that. We won't actually stop to focus on the light and experience his tender strength in a way that, that brings peace. And I'm, I'm almost unsure how to explain this in a way that will actually bring change to our lives. But friends, we've got to understand, if you desire the effect, peace, here's the cause, Christ. It's cause and effect. Christ is the one who brings us peace. He doesn't give us peace. He is our peace. So he doesn't give us peace that we use up like a full tank of gas and then need to refill it when we need it. No, we experience peace as he gives us himself, as we abide in him and him in us, which means we got to put our to-do list down and do the only thing that really matters. It's Mary and Martha. Pick the thing that matters most, because unless we do that, okay, family. Let's be just realistic for a second. Ah, in the darkness, look at the light. Okay, beautiful. Uh, Wrestle with God and sit in his lap. I love that idea. But see, unless we actually do that, then this is just all talk and theory on another lovely Sunday. It's just a nice thought to have right now, and then when we leave from here, it's going to make absolutely no difference to our lives. Because do you know what your soul needs? Um, Your soul does not need another sermon. It needs more Jesus. And what my soul needs isn't to preach another sermon, isn't to give another sermon, but to receive more Jesus. And so in this busy season, we actually have to stop in the darkness and look at the light. We actually have to wrestle with him and sit in his lap. And it turns out it's actually not all that complicated to do. It's not all that complicated to do. (laughs) 
it's really as simple as, as taking this Advent season and every single day, carving out the time to open up his word and pray. How do you focus on the light and the darkness? You open up his word and pray. How do you sit in his lap? You open up his word and pray. Perhaps it sounds too familiar. Perhaps it sounds too cliche. Perhaps it sounds too easy. But listen, it works. (laughs) That's how you do it. That's how you look away from the darkness and look at the light. That's how you sit on his lap. And um, like I said, it doesn't have to be complicated. Can I tell you, here's what I do. You ready to be really unimpressed by your pastor's devotional life? Okay. I get up in the morning and I get my Bible, and I read two chapters. I read, a cha- I read a psalm, okay? And then I read a chapter of another book. Right now, I'm reading through Luke. So I read a chapter from a psalm every day, and then I read uh, another chapter right now in the Gospel of Luke. And then I have, a bit, I have a journal, and I jot down anything that jumps out to me, right? Sometimes lots of things jump out to me, and I'll write for a little while. Sometimes not much jumps out to me, and I don't really say all that much, okay? It's not like, there's not like a word quota. I'm just like, whatever, whatever stands out to me, I, j- I jot that down, right? And then I pray. Recently, I've been using uh, the, the PRAY acronym. Uh, Jeff Vogan went over it with our staff uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I've been using it since then. But to pray, you P-R-A-Y, right? P, praise God. Praise God. Remind yourself of who God is. And that's really easy to do if you've just read a psalm, because you just pray back whatever the psalm said, right? Secondly, you repent. Having remind yourself of who God is, you remind yourself of who you are. You, you, you confess your sin and you receive the assurance of pardon. You remind yourself that, yeah, you're broken, but you're also beloved. After that, you A, ask. You ask the Lord for, for, for those things that are on your heart, for those things that are on your mind. If you're not sure what to ask about, just look at your calendar and ask about all of that. What's on today? Pray about it all. And then after asking you, why yield? Yield. Now, this is my favorite part of prayer, one that does my soul so good. You just turn over to the Lord, everything that you've been praying about, and you say, Lord, um, I'm giving this, all of this to you, so just help me follow you today. So all these things I've been asking you about, all these things I've been worrying about, it is beyond my level of expertise to think about them and worry about them. I've given them to you, so I'm going to leave them with you. Right? Uh, it reminds me... Um, you know, I, know not, I, I don't really know anything about cars, right? So when I have a problem with my car, I take it to the mechanic, and I drop it off, and I leave, and I don't think about it again until I go and pick it up. I don't go to work and think, ooh, I wonder if they're doing this, or if they're doing that, or if they're doing the next thing. Why? Because I'm completely unqualified to be worrying about what the mechanic is doing with my car. Well, in the same way, let's yield to God. I drop off all my concerns, and then I try to say, Lord, I am completely unqualified to worry about what you're going to do with my life. That is so far beyond my pay grade to be, to be worrying about things that I've dropped off with you. Right? Now, is that easy to do? No. Okay? Some days it's easier than others. But that's the beautiful thing about yielding in prayer. That whole process, prayer of praise, repentance, ask, yield, that whole process, along with reading a couple of chapters, takes me 15 minutes or more. Right? Um, and it grounds me in the gospel. It grounds me in who God is and who I am and in what life looks like as we live before his face. And the power is in doing that every single day because I don't know about you, but I don't wake up remembering these things. 
I don't wake up and think, ah, God is great. I'm a sinner, but I'm forgiven. Life is good, right? That's just like, you know, that's not what comes to mind first thing in the morning. I have to intentionally ground myself in the truth of the gospel in order to look away from the darkness into the light. Because I don't know about you, but I wake up more aware of the darkness than I am of the light. And so we've got to take time to be intentional to do that. And you can do that. If you've never done it before, here's the key. Just do it. Nike, let's go, right? Um, Do what I do. Do what you want to do. Pick up the Advent devotional. Do something else. There is one wrong way to do it, and that's not to do it. The only way to do this wrong is, is to not do it. And we just have to be a people, like, if we want life change, if we want our lives to be different because of the gospel, we really need to start wrestling with these realities. If we want the effect, peace, then we've got to go to the cause who is Christ. We've got to start believing that, okay, the gospel will make a difference to my life if I do what Jesus told me to do. Um, It will be more than just a Sunday activity if I start to knead it into the corners of my life. And I promise you, we'll be surprised. You know, there are some things in life um, you don't really, you don't really believe they'll make a difference until you start doing them. Uh, Sometimes it's the way with diet, right? You think you need to be on a diet and it just feels like you're, it just feels like self-denial, right? Until you eat healthy, you lose a bit of weight and you start to feel better. Exercise is the same way. It just seems like, oh, another thing that's on your schedule until you actually start to exercise it and you actually feel better. Now, you can talk about those things in theory and they don't do you any good, right? They don't do you any good. It doesn't do any good to um, talk about exercising while eating pizza, right? Um, that's, you know that's what we're doing right now. We're just talking. We're just talking. Right? What does good is to actually leave and do these things. And we actually do them, we feel better. And so it is with the Lord. Spending time with him, it's easy, it's doable, and it's unbelievably meaningful. The darkness will still be there, but you'll be living in the light. Uh, Your problems will still be there, but you'll be secure in his lap. So, as we light the way to Christmas, as we look toward Christ, let's put the to-do list down and do the one thing that matters instead. Um, Look away from the darkness, see his light, experience his strength and his care, Uh, that only and can only bring us peace. Um, It's the most wonderful time of the year, and it is a great time of the year and a great day to follow Christ and spend time with him day by day. There is no more wonderful life. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, um, thank you for little Bethlehem, for the reminder that... Uh, might and power and glory and honor and majesty belong to you, not to us, and that you actually delight in taking small things and through these small things accomplishing great things. Would we internalize that message, Lord, in this town of self-importance? Would we not think of ourselves more highly than we ought? But would we also celebrate, Lord, Uh, celebrate that you haven't put us on the bench, you've put us in, in the game. Weak and broken as we are, you can accomplish great things through us. But as much as we thank you for little Bethlehem, we give you praise for our large Jesus, our shepherd, our security, our peace, large enough to wrestle all of us to the ground and then sit us on his lap that we might feel secure. Father, would you make us a people who actually look away from the darkness into the light, day by day, coming to your word and prayer, that in this busy season, we might experience peace.
We pray in his perfect name. Amen.